So our lesson this morning on April 6th is the second part of Raising Responsible Children, and the text is Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, which read as follows. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who have, has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, we ask you that you would give us the words and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you, members, for coming to hear this lesson today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now let us briefly think back to our previous discussions on this topic. Our subject has to do with the academic achievement gap between children in our community and those in the majority community. We are discussing methods of preparing our children to bridge this achievement gap and bring our academic achievement level up to par with that of the larger culture. And I believe the church is an appropriate place to discuss this topic as the workings of the family is a primary focus of the gospel. First Timothy chapter five, verse eight tells us, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now on this subject, we first emphasize the necessity of conceiving children in a two-parent, covenantally married family. This is because God has so designed the raising of children that the project requires both a masculine and a feminine input. The idea currently prevalent in our society that a child does not actually need masculine input in his or her developmental years is a falsehood of the first rank. The entire book of Proverbs is the chronicle of the wisdom of the wisest man that ever lived, and the focus of his exposition is educating his son as to the way that life should be lived, and Solomon makes it clear in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 89 where he says, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains around your neck. Now, the intellectual fallacy that the parental input of men is not needed can be traced to the fact that children need an intuitive parental interaction during their infant and toddler years. Before children have the intellectual capacity for structured verbal communication, 
the majority of the interaction that they have require an intuitive focus by their caregiver. Women, created by God to mother children, are uniquely gifted by God to perform this intuitive task. Now, I know that it is considered heresy in our culture to suggest that men and women are intrinsically different. Secular authority dictates that we believe that the only differences between men and women are socialized by our culture. However, a magnetic resonance imaging study done by scientists from the University of Basel in Basel, Switzerland, and the Second University of Naples in Naples, Italy, came to the following conclusion based upon observation of MRIs of the brains of individuals of the test. Women, but not men, independent of their parental status, showed neural deactivation in the anterior cingulate cortex as indexed by decreased blood oxygenation level dependent signal in response to both infant crying and laughing. The response pattern changed fundamentally with parental experience in the amygdala and interconnected limbic regions, parents' independence of sex showed stronger activation from crying, whereas non-parents showed stronger activation from laughing. Now, this is medical jargon, but my layman's analysis of this medical jargon lead me to conclude that women's brains respond differently to the stimulus of listening to a baby's cry than do the brains of men. This differentiation in the response of women and men is actually biological, not cultural, and exists because of the creative choice of God. Isaiah 49 and 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. <clears throat> in my biblical search, I have not been able to find a parallel passage in the scripture concerning the interaction of men and nursing children. However, the Bible has many references about men interacting with their children once the children have the capacity for verbal communication. For example, Ephesians 6 and 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, there's a fallacy advanced in our popular culture that it is acceptable for women to intentionally become single mothers, that is, to intentionally deprive a child of a father. It is an incorrect assertion that children do not need fathers, but it is true that the negative effects of a lack of a father's participation in his child's life may not manifest themselves as seriously antisocial behavior during the child's intuitive phase, that is, during his infancy and toddlerhood. Antisocial behavior may not register until the child reaches the age in which he or she acquires some social autonomy. The negative effects do appear earlier, but the inability of the child to act out on them publicly makes them easier to ignore. But when children develop the, con the capacity for language, fathers have a definite role to play in the guiding and development of their children, and individuals that choose to ignore this reality will, generally speaking, eventually pay for their ignorance by having to deal with deportment problems of a child caused by the absence of a father. George Williams, in his article, Quenching the Father Thirst, found on the website fathers.com, writes, a staggering 70% of men in prison come from fatherless homes. 
And these fathers often continue the cycle since prison is an easy excuse not to be involved in their children's lives. So this information, along with our knowledge of the plan of God, should dispel the myth that in the normative case, a single-parent household is an acceptable alternative to a household with two covenantally married parents as a situation into which to bring an infant into the world or to raise a child. This is not to say that a child cannot survive with a single parent. We know that children across the country survive in this situation every day. However, it should be clear to anyone listening that a child has the best chance for success in an intact home, that being one in which the mother and father are married to one another and are constantly cooperating to raise the child. God tells us in the book of Malachi that the reason for marriage and the reason that he, God, hates divorce is that divorce interrupts the process of the production of godly offspring. Malachi 2, 15 and 16 says, But did he not make husband and wife one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So my first point is that children actually need two parents. Now David, the sweet singer of Israel, tells us in our text today, Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Of course, raising children, like going to college, has both rewards and challenges. A wit rewrote the last three verses of the 127th Psalm thusly. Lo, children are a burden from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb must be his way of testing us. As the source of endless work and continual aggravation, so are the children of one's youth. Unhappy is the man who hears his neighbor ask, do all those kids belong to you? Now there's no question that raising children is work and can have aggravating moments. However, the opportunity to develop the fruit of the womb is not so much God's way of testing us as God's way of letting us participate on his program. We can see from the work involved in Jesus Christ's ministry and his sacrifice on the cross that God's plan for our maturation involves our working to put the principles of his word into practice in practical application and raising children in a, is analogous to Jesus' ministry being the practical application of a love relationship to which we are called to give ourselves sacrificially. Let us go back for a moment to Isaiah 49 and 15 in which God tells us, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. It has become both commonplace and fashionable for parents in our time to abandon their children to institutionalized daycare. 
The thesis of Betty Friedan's seminal feminist work, The Feminine Mystique, is that women without a career in the workplace almost universally suffer from a psychological disorder which she termed the problem that has no name and prescribed work outside of the home as a solution to this problem of the emotional depression of women that take care of the home as a primary occupation. Ms. Redan conducted an impromptu unscientific sociological experiment to ascertain the state of mind of fulfilled mothers. She says in her book, I went first to the suburban mental health centers and guidance clinics to reputable local analysts, to knowledgeable local residents, and stating my purpose, asked them to steer me not to the neurotic, frustrated housewives, but to the able, intelligent, educated women who were well-adjusted full-time housewives and mothers. Ms. Friedan, based upon several interviews of women in this community, came to the following conclusion. Surely there are many women in America who are happy at the moment as housewives and some whose abilities are fully used in the housewife role. But happiness is not the same thing as the aliveness of being fully used, nor is human intelligence or ability a static thing. Housework, no matter how it is expanded to fill the time available, can hardly use the abilities of a woman or average or, or of average or normal human intelligence, much less the 50% of the female population whose intelligence in childhood was above average. And the conclusion of Ms. Friedan's book is that, the is that intelligent women that decide to become housewives are inevitably doomed to the deterioration of their mental faculties and that the remedy for the intellectual, intellectual melee of women in America is to abandon their children to daycare centers and obtain occupations in the workplace. She further concludes that women that follow this formula will be fulfilled by their careers in a way that taking care of their homes cannot duplicate. Ms. Friedan in her book characterizes housewives as focused on television, vacuum cleaners, dishwashers, automatic appliances, cooking, cleaning, washing, and ironing. And her thesis is that doing all, uh, housework all day, to put it colloquially, will rot a woman's brain. Now, I came to some conclusions after reading Ms. Friedan's work. First, Ms. Friedan did not use a normalized distribution of the population to develop a statistically accurate sample, but sampled women to which she was referred by mental health professionals. Understand that these women had to have been mental health patients at some point in their lives to be interviewed in the first place. An objective reviewer could conclude that a sample of people who had been under the care of a mental health professional would yield a different result than a normal distribution of the general population. Secondly, Mrs. Ferdinand's thesis is focused on performing housework and completely ignores the most important task that a housewife has to perform, that being the training and supervision of her children. While I can conceptually agree with Ms. Ferdinand that sweeping the floors all day would not sufficiently exercise an intelligent brain, I find it much more difficult to agree with the assumption that supervising the formation of young minds would fail to produce the stimulation that women require to maintain their mental balance. And I would also question whether or not a job in the workplace is necessarily more mentally balancing than raising children. The question is, 
how much more intellectually satisfying are these jobs than the freedom and leisure inherent in the task of keeping a home and raising children? How do the stresses of the two environments compare with one another? Now, Mrs. Friedan's assumption is that the workplace is more inherently satisfying for women than being at home, but she gives no objective proof to verify her assertion. While she interviews homemakers suffering from some type of melee, she does not interview a similar number of working women to see whether or not their workplace experiences are as satisfying as her assumption indicates. Nevertheless, Ms. Friedan's conclusions have become conventional wisdom in our society. Women now consider abandoning their homes and children as the norm and participation in the workforce as a requirement for satisfaction. How has the lack of individual attention and personal care for the family by the mother affected the family structure? In order to answer this question, I think that we need to consider the biblical purpose of parents. Proverbs 22 and 15 tells us, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, what does the Bible mean by foolishness? Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8 tells us, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I find that the easiest way to distinguish between the flesh and the spirit is to think of the dichotomy between the emotions and the intellect. Foolishness in the heart of the child indicates that a child is born with a fully developed set of emotions and a total lack of intellect. Every decision that a newborn child makes is based upon the child's emotional reaction to that which they feel. Babies cry when they are hungry without regard for the time of day. They are totally focused on the sensations that they feel regardless of how they affect or inconvenience other people. The natural state of immature human beings is emotionally driven self-centeredness. Now contrast the totally self-centered state of an infant with the totally self-sacrificial state of Jesus Christ, the most mature man that ever lived, who was so other-directed that he gave his life to save the eternal lives of the very people that hated him. As he was dying on the cross, in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, referring to the ones that put him on the cross. Now, the biblical purpose of parents is to emulate the example of the Christ, to change the thinking of their children from the foolishness of self-centeredness to the wisdom of self-sacrifice. God has scheduled children to travel from their original childish, foolish, emotion-driven, self-centered mindset in which they are born to the mature, intelligent, rational, other-directed mindset 
to which Jesus wants them to go. And parents have an 18-year assignment as the engineers driving the train that is transporting their child to God's desired destination. Children do not have the capacity to drive themselves. If the designated parents do not drive the train, it is a pretty safe bet that the destination will not be reached. It is good if a parent can simultaneously build competence, competence into their children while building character, but character is the most important component. Competence without character is really a vain accomplishment. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 tells us, though I speak with the tongues of men and angel and have not love, I have, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. God spent a lot of time having the children of Israel live under, live under a set of codified laws to prove that we, because of our sin nature, do not have the capacity to conform to an objective set of rules. God proved that because of our inherently self-centered nature, the only way that we can have a suitable relationship with him is if he provides us with a hands-on caregiver, the Holy Spirit, whom he sends to indwell us, to bring us to maturity in the same way that a mother is sent to care for her child. The relationship that God intends to exist between mother and child is analogous to that which exists between us and the Holy Spirit, as Romans chapter 8 describes. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The flesh is our self-centered emotional component that rejects constraints, even as does an infant child. The Lord gives us God's constraint but we do not have the capacity to keep the law because of our self-centeredness and emotionality. However, God also gives us the Holy Spirit to perform the task analogous to that of a mother with the intuitive focus to communicate, to, our, to communicate past our flesh to our spirit, which is our intellect, and prepare us to discipline ourselves to do that which God wants us to do. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11 describes, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And Jesus described this new life to Nicodemus as being born again. 
So just as the Holy Spirit is God's ordained guide to lead us to Christian maturity, mothers are the God-ordained guides to lead their children from the intuitive state to the intellectual state. Understanding that which God is trying to accomplish by sending children into the world and the role that he expects parents to play in their development, I hope that we can understand the reason that God gives children intuitive mothers that can understand their nonverbal communications and personally supervise their early childhood development. The rationale developed by, by Ms. Friedan that mothers should abandon their children to institutionalized childcare so that mothers can avoid the melee of housework seems to miss the point of God's plan for families. Childhood development and marital harmony and longevity rather than the avoidance of housework and personal aggrandizement is the focus of God's plan for marriage. I also challenge the assertion made by Ms. Fredan that the role of mothers that do not participate in work outside the home is any less satisfying than that of those who do. There are benefits to those that have a different perspective about staying at home than Mrs. Fredan espouses. A mother sent this email to an advocate for mothers that stay at home to raise their children. She says, I am constantly faced with an issue. How can we stay at home, husband-loving, uh, husband-loving, kid-loving, school-volunteering moms get along with other moms? I do not bash my husband. I do not complain about my kids' homework not getting done or spending too much time at work or commuting. These conversations come up quite frequently when I'm at my daughter's school or at her after-school activities. I have no problem joining in with the conversation. But when one mom starts, uh, starts on about her husband not doing his share of the housework and child rearing, I cannot join in with her complaint. I comment, I don't have those problems. My husband is my manly hero. He works hard to take care of the family, and when he comes home, I am more than happy to serve him his dinner. I enjoy taking care of him because he takes care of me. This usually ends a discussion for me. The conversation with the other mom either stops dead in his tracks or I am turned away from him, or I am turned away from. This secretly pleases me. When I get home to my handsome man, I want to show him how much I love and appreciate him. Maybe this isn't such of a problem after all. I enjoy keeping the conversation going because I am happily married and I'm glad to be able to take care of my husband and children. And there are many women, like the author of this email, that do not subscribe to Ms. Friedan's hypothesis and rather have a biblical focus. Paul gives us the general idea of God's focus in 1 Timothy 5.14, saying, Therefore I desire the younger, that younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Proverbs 31, 10-31 discusses a virtuous wife, that being one that has a focus on her children and a home-based business making garments both to sell and clothe her own family. The conclusion of this passage of Scripture, Proverbs 31, 25-31, tells us, Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. 
Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So both of these passages of scripture indicate that a woman that manages her house and cares for her children as a full-time occupation is in the will of God. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 14 and 1 tells us, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish one pulls it down with her hands. So children in their formative years need loving, nurturing, directive supervision. Children need the administration of a hands-on supervisory parent that loves them and can communicate this love both intuitively and verbally. The key to early childhood development is to provide children with the deep personal relationship that, that which they need. Infants and toddlers need individual attention from a caregiver with an intuitive focus and are not prepared for institutionalization. Our schools do not accept children less than five years of age because in the normative case, it takes five years of maturation in a supportive environment for a child to develop the emotional stability required to deport themselves properly in an academic environment. Mother is the person equipped and ordained by God to supervise this early childhood maturation, just as the Holy Spirit is the person ordained to supervise our adult maturation into the image and likeness of Christ. And if we actually want to bridge the achievement gap uh, in our children, between our children and the children of the larger population, we must not only endeavor to return to the norm of having children only within the context of marriage, but the marriages that we make must be so stable so as to allow the mother to practice the hands-on supervision of the children that she produces in accordance with the plan of God. So in order to bridge the achievement gap in our community, we need to return to the plan of God for our family. The thinking of the psychologist and the sociologist may give us some interesting food for thought, but the master planner is still God, and we should use his blueprint to build our houses. Psalm 127.1 tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Richard God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson and for, your, and for this direction in the way that uh, we are to deport ourselves. And we ask for those who are going to hear, who hear this message and are going to hear this message that uh, they would take your word to heart, that they would examine it and uh, come to the conclusions uh, that they come to based upon the word. We pray for our children around our city and around our country. And we ask you, Lord, that you would bless every home that has a child being raised in it, that the parents might be able to uh, decide to train their children in the way that they should go so that when they become old, they will not depart from it. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. We ask you that you give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. 
Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen and thank God. Praise God, our Father, we thank you this morning for another opportunity that we've had to come out to the house of prayer. We thank you for the, for the wonderful discussion that we had today. And we ask you, Lord, that as uh, we prepare this uh, particular uh, sermon to go out over the Internet and over the airways, that uh, uh, you might allow it to uh, create discussion in other quarters and that it, you might allow others to come to the conclusion to which they need to come about their personal situation. We ask that you'd bless homes with children this morning and that you give parents patience, that you give parents devotion, that you give uh, parents that which they require to train up their children in the way that they should go. Uh, we ask you, Lord, that uh, you would affect our minds, that we might be able to do the right thing as it, as it uh, pertains to our children. We're praying for Sister Allen this morning. We're thanking you for her and for her husband being here with the grandchildren. And we're asking you, Lord, that you would continue to bless them as they go down from this place. We're praying. We're thanking you, Lord, for good results for the store at the Easter time and that the uh, prophets have come in. And we're thanking you for that. We're thanking you for the improvement in the condition of Brother Hardry, who's begun walking in rehab, although he's still in the hospital. We just thank you, Lord, that things are going well or with him or as well as they are. We're also thanking you, Lord, for Sister Sanchez and for her sister who is able to donate the kidney. And we're asking you, Lord, that you would continue to give the doctor skill uh, as they go through the operations that are required uh, to complete that procedure. We ask that you make it routine. Just let the doctors have a good day on that day. Allow both of them uh, to come through the surgery with flying colors. We just ask you, Lord, that you go with them and stand by them. I got and direct the doctors and all that they do as well. Praying for Sister Artis, who's broken her ankle. And we're asking you, Lord, that uh, you would allow her to uh, heal. Uh, I, I think that she's still immobilized on that side. And we ask you, Lord, that you give her the patience that she needs uh, to maintain that position so that she doesn't have to be casted and so that uh, she, her bones will just knit back together on their own. And we ask the Lord that you would bless those who are helping her in her condition and give them, make them good caregivers so that they might be able to uh, do something for her uh, that they are called to do in these days. And we thank you for it. And Lord, I'm praying for those who, by whom my wife is uh, continuing also in prayer for uh, Sister Allen's uh, father. We ask that you continue to regulate him and keep him working well and we thank you for that for all that are on her list we ask you Lord that you bless in all those cases on there praying for the kids asking you that you go with them uh, give them uh, leadership uh, leadership that, that they may be lacking we ask you that you let it come from someplace and uh, give us uh, the responsibility that we might be able to help these young men and, this young, and these young women uh, to grow up uh, to be strong and healthy and on the right side of the, of the situation just allow them to recognize that uh, they need to discipline their young lives and help them to uh, deport themselves in the way that they should. And we thank you for that as well. Now I'm praying for my wife as she's traveling today. I'm asking the Lord that you would take her to Battle Creek safely and bring her back in the same way. Allow her uh, to enjoy her day there with her friend and with his family. And we just ask you, Lord, that uh, you give both she and Paul traveling mercies and then bring them back at the appointed time. We're praying for her friend, Camille Garrity, who's still at the Mayo Clinic having her pancreatic cancer monitored. 
and worked on it. We ask, Lord, that you give the doctors there uh, good skill as they work on that problem and then extend to him of your garment that she might be made whole as well. And we thank you for it. Pray for those about whom Paul is concerned. We're asking you that you continue to bless Eric and Amanda as their due date is drawing nearer. We ask you, Lord, that you continue to bind them together with the cords of love that cannot be broken. And as, as the children, uh, as the child comes into the world, we just ask you, Lord, that you would go with him, bless him, and, and guide him. And guide them as they raise him. Give them the patience that they need, that they might be able to do a good job in that venue. Pray for Rick, who's over overseas. And we ask that you bless both he and his wife. And bind them together with the cords of love, although they are apart. apart. Keep them faithful to one another. And we just thank you, Lord, for that which they are doing. And we pray for them as well. Pray for Brother Edwards this morning, Lord. We ask that you bless him, bless the boys, and allow them to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we just ask you, Lord, that you'd uh, keep Brother Edwards safe as he travels up another dangerous highway on, in his occupation. And allow him, as he may have to go into dangerous places, uh, to have your armor protection around him as well. Pray for his wife and for the remainder of his family, for his grandmother as well. We ask you, Lord, that you just continue to bless in that family. Pray for Brother Lee, Lord, and we're asking that you bless his family as they are traveling today. Allow them to have a great spring break trip and to enjoy themselves on the road as they are. We're praying for him, allow him to, to uh, enjoy himself here as they are, as he can, as they are gone. And we just ask you, Lord, that uh, you just go with those uh, whom he is concerned about. Go with them and stand by them. We pray for his son who is winding up his academic career. And we ask you, Lord, that uh, you would give him a successful conclusion in this last month. And then after that, you would give him a great uh, vacation trip out uh, to the Far East. And then that you would bring him back and make him available and ready for his gainful employment at the conclusion of his collegiate career. And we thank you for that as well. Praying for uh, Cedric and for the family. We're asking the Lord that you would bless them as they consider uh, Cedric's next academic step. We want you, we just ask you, Lord, that you'd uh, go with those that have uh, that decision uh, about Cedric in their hand and give them a favorable outlook that they might be able to uh, do what is needed to make it possible for Cedric to go to the place where he'd like to go to school. We ask you, Lord, that you just bless that family and bless all associated with them on the list as well. Praying for the McClure, we're thanking you for them, and we're asking you, Lord, that you would help Janelle uh, to have the type of uh, law school experience that she desires. We ask you that you'd allow uh, all the schools that are involved in trying to gain her, uh, her as a student to recognize the need and to meet the need and allow her to be able to choose a place uh, that meets her that meets her desires. And we ask you, Lord, that uh, you allow this last month in undergrad uh, to be a great month for her. Just allow her to enjoy it. And we pray for J.J. as well. We ask that you bless him even as he's up at Central. Give him uh, that which he requires as he prepares uh, for the end of this academic year. We ask you that you give him a steel trap mind as he studies for those finals, that he might have a, a report that is pleasing in the sight of his parents and prepare him uh, for his next year going in. Also praying for Brother Henry Smith who's looking for a job. We're asking you, Lord, that you allow someone to smile on him and give him gainful employment in his field. And we're praying for all of the rest that are on the list, uh, for Brother and Sister McClure, and we're asking that you go with them and stand by them uh, this week as well. 
I'm praying for the Winston family. We ask that you continue to bless Brother Winston as his shoulder is healing. I mean, as his knee, rather, is healing. And Sister Winston, we ask you just go with them, uh, guide them, and direct them in all that they do. And I'm praying for Dad, uh, asking you that you continue to bless him. We thank you that the, the eye surgery has been successfully concluded and that his vision is almost back to normal. And we just want to thank you for that. And we ask you, Lord, that you bless Aunt Naomi as she's going in to have her second eye done this month. We just ask you that you go with her and stand by her in that situation and give her a similar positive experience as Dad had. Praying for the rest of the family and asking you to bless all around the circle. And also for the Perkins down in Louisiana and the Northerns down in Texas. Just go with them, those young men, as they're raising those children down there and help them to raise them the way that they should go. Now, Lord, we pray for the, the organization that you've given us here, this little place that we have, that we can come and praise your name and talk about your word. And we just want to thank you for that. And also for the television station, for the armed forces across the country and around the world. But it's actually that you would surround those young men with your hedge of protection. Keep them safe from all hurt, harm, and danger. Let them be victorious in that which they are doing. And then bring them back home safely to their families at the end of their appointed tour of duty. We're praying for the young men and women in our, in our neighborhood and um, for the salvation of our family and friends. And Lord, I continue in prayer for my wife, who's the love of my life. I just ask you, Lord, that you keep us close and keep us together as we take this little trip, that you allow us to enjoy and come back at the appointed time that we might be able to enjoy ourselves. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, arising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen, and thank God. Jesus Christ gave his life out on the old rugged cross. He was a sacrifice that paid the penalty that we owe for the sins that we, are, we have committed. And as we go down from this place, let us remember the sacrifice that he made and let us sacrifice ourselves for someone else that they might be able to grow from the sharing that we have with them through the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Help, let us be like Jesus Christ as we go down from this place and let us remember him now as we eat and drink together. And may the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit rest with us now, henceforth and forevermore. Let every heart say, Amen.